Welcome to this episode of Spinning Fiction Out of Facts, the fascinating history and tall but true tales which inspired my novel, The Persistent Buccaneer. My name is Dana Kester-McCabe. This is Episode 4, Colonial Women, The Haves and Have-Nots. The historical record shows that Anne Toff's success as the mistress of a large plantation was in stark contrast with the deprivation experienced by most other women of her era. It is commonly known that women without means or position did not have an easy time of it in colonial America. One of the most egregious cases of this can be found in the trials of Henry Smith, because the real-life characters in my story played a minor part in them. Smith owned one plantation near Oak Hall, Virginia, and another on what is now Smith Island, Maryland. Accusations about his mistreatment of servants cluttered up court records for several years. At least two men died in his service as the result of his whippings. He never answered for those crimes because the law favored masters over servants. They were allowed to mete out harsh discipline almost with impunity. But the scandal that rocked the community in 1668 involved his affair with a woman named Elizabeth Carter. Elizabeth had been Henry's indentured servant and lover for some time. He had promised to marry her, but instead married a widow named Joanna. Elizabeth claimed that when she got pregnant, Henry had forced her to take an abortive potion. This apparently did not work, and she had to carry the child to term. When the delivery was imminent, Elizabeth went to the home of her friend, Jean Hill, who shared with her the dubious reputation of being a, quote, wild woman, unquote. Despite their best efforts, the baby was stillborn. Many people were aware of Elizabeth's condition. Jean knew that they would have to explain what happened to the baby, or they could both be charged with a crime. It was the custom of the time for midwives and respected planters' wives to be impaneled and make the determination as to whether or not a stillborn child was the result of natural or evil causes. Jean dutifully called in two neighbor women who decided this was a case of infanticide. Elizabeth was arrested. At her trial, she blamed everything on Henry Smith. His other servants were called to give testimony. They confirmed the baby's paternity, but did not stop there. They told a horrific tale about life on Smith's two plantations. Henry regularly beat and raped his wife and all his female servants. Some had borne his illegitimate children. He had one woman who tried to run away confined against her will on his Smith Island plantation for two years. However, Elizabeth was not painted as an innocent victim. Her co-workers reported that she and Henry were sadists who took turns beating the servants, delighting in the pain they inflicted. Also, Elizabeth had been pregnant more than once before and had bragged about taking that same abortive potion more effectively in the past. About this time, Henry's wife Joanna found the courage to join the chorus. She brought her own charges of rape and assault against him. Joanna and Sarah, her four-year-old daughter from her first marriage, had run away to a neighbor's house. She claimed that Smith's servants were too frightened of their master to even come to her aid when she cried out for help during one of his attacks. 
Joanna was so afraid for her child, she had asked another family to take her in and raise her. This is where the real-life Edmund Scarborough and Anne Toff come in. Edmund was one of the magistrates on Elizabeth Carter's case and in Henry Smith's subsequent local trial. He and Anne took pity on Joanna and invited her to stay with them at Gargafia. When Henry was mounting his defense, he accused Colonel Scarborough of trying to seduce his wife while she stayed there. Knowing Scarborough's libertine reputation, this may have simply been a ploy to discredit the court proceedings. Henry accused his wife of other dalliances as well. She staunchly denied everything he said and produced corroborating witnesses to back her up. This all makes for a titillating plot line in my novel, and I certainly used it, but the injustice of this saga's outcome is why it is included in that chapter. You'll have to read it to find out what happened to him and the women he abused. It isn't clear from the various accounts I read what the ultimate conclusion of Elizabeth Carter's trial was. I presume she was convicted and then let go after some sort of penalty. Unfortunately, in those days, the law required indentured women who were impregnated to work an additional two years on their contracts to make up for the time lost in pregnancy and childcare, no matter what the circumstances of conception were or who the father was. Court records show that Anne Toft was not above having runaway indentures chased down and taken to court and punished. One pair of Anne's servants, who had an extramarital affair, were brought to court, convicted of fornication, and beaten. Sex outside of marriage was a criminal offense in the colonies. There was no mention of who turned these two into the authorities. Given Anne's own illegal relationship with Colonel Scarborough, you have to wonder why they could get away with it when their servants could not. Clearly, in colonial Virginia... The highborn and their friends lived by a separate set of rules. You're listening to Spinning Fiction Out of Facts, the fascinating history behind my novel, The Persistent Buccaneer. As bad as indentured servant women had it, slaves had it worse in colonial Virginia. They had no rights whatsoever. The various forms of bondage experienced by Anne Toft and the people she knew make slavery a central theme in my novel. No fiction is necessary to set this stage. The historical record contains all the drama necessary. In 1656, Edmund Scarborough went to New Amsterdam and bought 41 Africans to take back to his plantations. They had arrived in the English colony by way of Dutch slavers who transported them from Brazil their first stop after being kidnapped in West Africa. These were not the first laborers on the eastern shore considered to be slaves. Three years earlier, Edmund's neighbor, Anthony Johnson, brought a legal suit in Northampton County Court to argue that one of his African servants, John Casor, was indentured to him for life. Casor, thinking his indenture had been completed, left to go to work for another planter. Johnson was himself a landowner and a free man of color. After examining the contract evidence, the court took Johnson's side, making this the first jurisdiction in the colony to legally acknowledge that free Africans could own slaves. Edmund actually served as one of the magistrates who ruled in Johnson's favor. 
Before long, most plantation owners were looking to purchase slaves rather than use the headright system as a source for their labor. African slaves could be treated like livestock and needed only to be replaced when they wore out and died. Aristocratic and newly rich landowners alike considered the poor white riffraff who had finished their indentures to be a nuisance. They didn't want them interfering with the social order they had worked so hard to create. Meanwhile, former servants seemingly could not wait to own land and slaves themselves. This is an important point of tension in my book. How does a former indentured servant reconcile ownership of another human being? At several points, the fictional Anne points out the immorality of slavery, but ultimately, she herself profits from it. In 1658, a mixed-race woman named Elizabeth Key filed suit in James City, Virginia, to be recognized as a free woman of color. Her mother was African, and her father was a white landowner who had acknowledged her as a child. She was baptized and raised in the Anglican Church. Her father took legal steps to protect her by indenturing her to another white man who promised she could go free once she was an adult. This master sold her contract to someone else who kept her past her term of indenture. When he died, his heirs tried to claim that she was a slave. Elizabeth sued, citing the English law that said that a child's status is inherited from their father. She presented the court with all the right documents and pointed out that it was also illegal under English law to enslave other Christians. Elizabeth made her case and won. This did not sit well with plantation owners, considering the number of children they were fathering with their own black slaves. In 1662, the General Assembly in Virginia enacted a law declaring that all children born in the colony would have the same social status as their mothers, regardless of who their fathers were. The forced breeding of women slaves thus became standard operating procedure. Some would have you believe that this heinous practice did not begin until the importation of slaves from abroad was outlawed in the early 19th century, causing plantation owners to decide that if they could not buy more slaves, they could make more. There is little documentation of the forced breeding of slaves prior to that. The mores of the day would have made it a shameful thing, but that just means they didn't proudly keep records of it. It seems pretty clear from the progression of the laws enacted in the American colonies that the forced breeding of African slaves with their masters was going on from the beginning, even if history books often whitewash this topic. I have no proof that the real-life counterparts to the characters in my book engaged in forced breeding or any of the other despicable acts that brought drama to my fiction. I certainly don't mean to cast aspersions on anyone's ancestors, but these kinds of things did happen, and one of the benefits of historical fiction is the collective truth it inspires us to look at. In 1667, the Virginia Assembly went further to prevent Christian slaves from following in Elizabeth Key's footsteps. They enacted a law which said that being baptized and conversion to Christianity did not exempt anyone from being enslaved. In 1669, white masters were exempted from murder charges when they killed their slaves. In 1680, this law was made even more explicit in an attempt to quash any forms of potential slave insurrection. In 
Anything a slave did that looked threatening was deemed punishable by immediate death at the discretion of their master. This was followed in 1682 by a declaration that any non-Christian servants in the colony could be enslaved. Interracial marriage was outlawed altogether. It is not hard to see in these laws the planting of those evil seeds of today's violence and discrimination against African Americans. My book does not strictly follow the chronological timeline of the legislative history, but it does attempt to show how colonists would rationalize their actions regarding the treatment of slaves. It was hard to write about the cruelty inflicted on the slave characters in The Persistent Buccaneer. I have to say that one of the reasons I found Anne Toff's story so compelling was that it helped me think about the origins of today's bigotry without indulging in utter hypocrisy. I can certainly imagine the life of slaves, but I am better equipped to explore the impotence of someone who abhors evil acts, yet does not find any effective way to stop them. It is the story of many of our lives today. Antoff's corruption stems from the poor excuses she makes while all the while deceiving herself, thinking her intentions are good. You are listening to Spinning Fiction Out of Facts, the interesting stories which inspired the novel The Persistent Buccaneer. Most women, regardless of their status in colonial Virginia, lived under very rustic conditions. They spent their time toiling in the fields, cooking, cleaning, and caring for children. Poor women early in the colonial era were lucky to live to the age of 30. White women were in high demand as wives during that time. They could afford to be picky. They knew that marriage to a landowner was the only guarantee against a hard-scrabble life of poverty. In my book, the young, isolated Anne Toft doesn't make the decision to become Edmund Scarborough's mistress merely on some romantic juvenile whim. She does so out of the legitimate fear of penury. Single, unmarried women were extremely vulnerable. They had just about no legal rights. Unless they were able to secure the protection of a male family member, they could be forced into indenture for their own safety. Anne's plan to live like a planter's wife was an act of survival. And why not? The privileged women of the planter class lived in fine houses, wore nice clothes, and had servants to wait on them. They enjoyed an unusual amount of feminine autonomy. In the early days of the colony, when the population was sparse, this was merely a practical division of labor. Women of the upper class were often left to their own devices because their spouses traveled frequently on business of one sort or another. These privileged ladies had to run their households on their own initiative. They were identified in the law in two categories. The femme covert was a woman whose husband had put her in charge of their joint domestic affairs. The femme sole was a widow who was free to conduct her own business while remaining unmarried. The latter was given greater leeway in the law. They could travel more freely and generally make decisions without the approval of a man. None of the women of either category could legally vote, but they enjoyed much more agency than other women, and often more than some free men. They could sign contracts, testify in court, and own property. Just the same, most of the femme covert did not make a move without their husband's say-so. Men were firmly in charge. 
they were considered the de facto owners of all their wives' property, no matter what the deed said. Widowhood was the only chance for women to have true sovereignty over their own lives and business. That may have been the reason the real Antoff passed herself off as a widow. Her reputation as a beauty made it odd that she would remain unmarried for the decade she spent with the colonel. Either everyone bought Anne's story or they gave her a pass because crossing her boyfriend Edmund Scarborough was more trouble than exposing her was worth. Anne took full advantage of her supposed widowhood. Mourning periods were short in those days, especially if someone had property. A wife who could bring considerable assets to the union and knew how to increase profits was highly sought after. One such woman of that era was Anna Varlet Hack Boot. She and her first husband, Dr. Charles Hack, lived in Northampton County on Virginia's eastern shore. They were Dutch emigres who became naturalized Virginians. He was a better doctor than a businessman, so he left the running of their plantation and export business to Anna, who had wealthy family connections in New Amsterdam. By all accounts, Anna was a remarkable entrepreneur for her day. Her plantations in Virginia and later Cecil County, Maryland, were so successful she was able to invest in a fleet of ships. Not long after the good doctor passed away in 1665, Anna married a rich merchant named Nicholas Boot. When he died in 1668, she continued on with her thriving business. She was a tough cookie who was not afraid to take people to court who tried to cheat her. I didn't find any accounts of Anne Toft actually meeting or doing business with Anna, but they certainly traveled in the same circles. All the planters in the region knew each other and collaborated on their shipping needs. Though Anne Toft eventually purchased her own vessels, early on she may have contracted some of Anna's. So enter the fictional version of Anna Varlet Hack Boot to be a minor character and mentor to Anne in my novel. Another powerful independent woman to be given a small fictional role in the novel is Lady Frances Berkeley. The real-life Frances Culpepper inherited a great deal of wealth and property from her first husband upon his death. She then quickly married Virginia Governor Sir William Berkeley, who was twice her age. Lady Frances was a shrewd and talented political hostess who used her high position to broker alliances at the dining table of her lavish Green Spring Plantation near James City. She was an influential mover and shaker until her cousin, Nathaniel Bacon, led an armed insurrection against her husband's government. In my book, Lady Frances plays a part in determining what would happen to Anne after Edmund Scarborough passed away. I freely admit I made that up just to move the story along and demonstrate the link between politics on both sides of the Chesapeake Bay. The real Anne Toff likely did not socialize with most respectable women due to her sketchy reputation, and at that time the distance between plantations on the eastern shore frontier would not have lent itself to the same sort of social life found in the more civilized James City. Anne's allies would have been her business associates. Wealth and privilege do not always lead to sincere friendships. This was probably Anne's greatest challenge, to cultivate loyal, supportive friends. Anne could have wealth and privilege, but respectability would be much harder to achieve. 
In the final episode of this podcast, The Colonial Legacy, hear about other historical events which made it into my book, leaving a lasting impact on the region, and some tidbits about Anne Toff's real-life descendants. Thank you for listening to this episode of Spinning Fiction Out of Facts. If you like this podcast, you will love the novel The Persistent Buccaneer, which will soon be available through Moonshell Productions. Find out more at moonshell.net slash novel2020. This podcast has been a Moonshell production, written and narrated by Dana Kester-McCabe.